Good morning. I'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, the fishermen drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Uh, have you ever said, uh, heard people say something like, you know, the God of the Old Testament is a, a God of wrath and judgment. And I could never believe in, in a God of wrath and judgment. But, but the New Testament God uh, of Jesus, that's a God of love. And I could only believe in a God of love, never a God of judgment. That's a pretty common statement. Um, but one of the problems with that is this passage <laughs> that we just read. Um, you know, Jesus here is finishing a very long section of parables that are about the kingdom of God. And at the very end, he offers a parable of warning and judgment that is every bit as terrifying as anything you will read in the Old Testament. I mean, think about that. Our culture loves the idea of a loving God. But where does that idea come from? It comes from Jesus. And yet Jesus, here at the end of this section, he, he, he offers us a parable of terrifying warning. And by the way, it's not the only place he does something like that. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous teaching of Jesus in the Bible. It's full of um, places where Jesus says, love your enemies, love your neighbors, all kinds of stuff like that. But then at the very end, Jesus offers another warning of judgment and rejection and destruction for anyone who fails to build their lives on his word. In the Bible, nobody talked more about judgment than Jesus did. But that's confounding to us because we get this idea of a loving God from Jesus. The whole idea that we, in our culture, we love the idea of a loving God, and that comes to us from Jesus, that you will not find another religion that emphasizes a loving God more than Christianity. And yet, the person most responsible for giving us this idea of a loving God also talked nonstop about judgment. Do you realize what this means? If we want to get rid of judgment, we have to get rid of Jesus. But if we get rid of Jesus, then we also have to get rid of this idea of a loving God. That means that, at least in Jesus' mind, it's possible to hold together both judgment and love. In fact, Jesus is showing us here that unless we allow God to be a God of judgment, then we can't possibly have this loving God that we so desperately desire. How is that possible? Listen, are there problems with this idea of judgment? Are there intellectual difficulties? You bet there are. But there are even bigger problems without it. What do I mean? Um, uh, when we look at this idea of judgment, when we look at this parable, Jesus is revealing the true nature of things. He's revealing the true nature of this world that we live in. Are we willing to look at what he's showing us here? Maybe look at it again, things we thought we've seen and we know what Jesus is talking about. Can we look at it again? 
The great writer G.K. Chesterton once said, there is a law written in the darkest books of life, and it is this. If you look at a thing 999 times, you are perfectly safe. But if you look at it the thousandth time, then you are in frightful danger of seeing it for the first time. Can we look at this idea of judgment for the thousandth time, but maybe see it for the first time? In this parable, uh, Jesus is revealing that God's judgment reveals the true nature of three things. Judgment reveals the true nature of human dignity. It reveals the true nature of hope. And it reveals the true nature of God. Okay? Judgment reveals the true nature of dignity, hope, and God. Let's take a look at each one of those. Okay? First, God's judgment reveals the true nature of human dignity. How so? In this parable, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered every kind of fish. He says, when it was full, the fishermen drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And right after this, Jesus tells us explicitly that these bad fish are evil people who get thrown into a fiery furnace. Yikes. This is hard for us, especially as modern people, because we hear this and we instantly get this picture of God welcoming the good religious people and rejecting the bad irreligious people. And everything inside of us revolts against that picture. However, that's not what Jesus is saying here. First of all, who is Jesus talking to here? Who is he warning? He's warning good religious people. He's warning Orthodox Jews who already go to temple. They already obey the law. They already give to the poor. At the level of moral behavior, they're already doing everything right. So how can Jesus warn them that they're in risk of rejection? Well, if we go back to the beginning of of the parables, remember the very first parable of the sower? Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a seed that was sown in four different kinds of soil. The first three soils are unfruitful. Only the fourth soil bears any fruit. What's the difference? Jesus tells us that the different soils are different ways of responding to him. He's saying, the kingdom is present because I am present, because I am the king, and your welcome into the kingdom depends on your welcome or rejection of me. Listen, if we really want to understand what Jesus means by judgment, not what we think he means, but what Jesus really means, then we need to understand it in light of what he's already told us about the kingdom. And what he's already told us is that the difference between people is not the difference between good people who do good deeds and bad people who do bad deeds. It's the difference between people who welcome Jesus and his kingship or reject Jesus and his kingship. And by the way, that does not mean that Jesus doesn't care about whether we do bad things. He absolutely cares. In fact, um, Jesus cares to transform all of your life, including your moral and ethical life. Again, read the Sermon on the Mount. You will not find a more exalted ethical teaching than the Sermon on the Mount. What it does mean is that your behavior, doing bad things, is not the root of evil, It's the fruit of evil. Doing bad things is not the root of evil. It's the fruit of evil. The real root 
of evil is when we build our lives and our identities on something other than Jesus. By the way, that's why this image of a fiery furnace is so powerful. Think about what fire means. Fire is disintegration. That means that when we build our identities on something other than God, other than Jesus, then we are already slowly disintegrating because if we build our identity on something that cannot last, you cannot last. When Jesus calls us to root our identity in him, listen, there is nothing more dignifying than that. You know, in our culture, we make a really big deal about personal identity, right? We say that everybody has to look inside your own heart and listen to that voice inside of you and whatever you desire, whatever your heart tells you, that you have to express that to the world around you. That idea comes to us from a French philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau who lived about 250 years ago. Rousseau's big idea was that society oppresses you. Society imposes false identities on you. And therefore, you must look inside your heart and get in touch with your true, authentic self and express it to the world around you. Does that sound familiar? That idea is everywhere in our culture. For instance, the movie Moana is all about a Polynesian princess who um, hears the voice of the ocean calling her to save her island. But then the spirit of her grandmother comes to her and tells her, Moana... Um, nothing on earth can silence that, that voice inside of you. And when that voice inside of you whispers, Moana, you've come so far. Moana, listen, do you know who you are? And all of a sudden, Moana has this realization that it's not the ocean. It's not something outside of her that's calling her. And she starts to sing. The call isn't out there at all. Where is it? It's inside me. <laughs> I was glad Mary got it. I was wondering, is anybody going to sing along? Man, that is such a powerful song. It, it stirs you, right? It, it, this is such a powerful image and, and um, picture in our culture. Our whole modern concept of identity is built on this idea that you must have absolute freedom to create and choose your own identity and then express it to the world around you. And if you don't have the freedom to choose that identity, then you have been stripped of your dignity. Friends, Jesus honors you with the dignity of choosing what will you build your identity on. That, you know, we talk a lot about authenticity and you've got to be your authentic self. The essence of authenticity is that we all have a moral responsibility to choose what are we going to build our identity on. We have a moral responsibility to choose our identity. Jesus will not strip you of that choice. Jesus will not release you from that responsibility. Jesus will not strip you of that dignity. Jesus honors that dignity and says, you must choose. What will you build your identity on? Friends, listen, here's the point. Um, God's judgment is not something so much that he does to us as something that he allows us to do to ourselves. God gives us the dignity of choice. He says, what will you build your identity on? You can build your identity on me and last forever, or you can build your identity on something that cannot last. But if you build your identity on something that cannot last, you cannot last. No one said this better than C.S. Lewis. He once said, it's not a question of God, quote, sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will of itself 
be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Dear ones, your will is yours to do with what you will, and God will not override that will. He gives you the dignity of choosing and, and judgment is the inevitable result of us doing what we choose to do with our own will. And that leads to our next point. Jesus is showing us here the true nature of dignity. But secondly, he shows us that judgment reveals the true nature of hope. Now, if you've been with us, you might remember that we've learned that at this time, Jewish people were living under brutal oppression from the Roman Empire. And that when Jesus came along and started talking about the kingdom of God... Bells would have been ringing for them because for Jewish people, the kingdom of God was all about this promise all through the Bible that one day God was going to come and rescue them from evil and renew this world to be a place where there is no more evil, no more sin, sickness, suffering, pain, or even death. And it wasn't just for Israel only. It was for all the nations of the world, all the people of the world. That's why throughout this series, we've been saying that the kingdom of God is a multi-ethnic, multicultural story of rescue and renewal for the whole world. That's what the kingdom of God is. And we see that in this passage. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a net, but then he says, um, so it will be at the end of the age. Now, if you were with us in the first week, we learned that this phrase, the age, has a very specific meaning for Jesus and for Jewish people at the time. The age was a very prominent idea in Jewish thought that said this present world that we live in is an age that's under the dominion of evil, sin, and death. But Jewish people were hoping for a future age, an age to come called the kingdom of God, in which God would come and rescue them from evil and make this world a place that it was supposed to be. That's what they were hoping for. Now, let me ask you the question, do you hope for a world where there is no more evil? I do, and I'm guessing you do too. Um, we all hope for a world where there is no more evil. Friends, that's the kingdom of God. You know, when we modern people hear this phrase, the kingdom of God, oftentimes it's easy for us to think, oh, you know, what does that mean? That mean does that mean the church, like the people of God? Or, or maybe we think the kingdom of God means a place, like some distant heaven where the streets are paved with gold. But that's not what the Bible means when it talks about the kingdom of God. In the Bible, the word kingdom is a very dynamic, active word. It's not so much something that exists as something that happens. Or we could say it like this, whenever you hear the phrase the kingdom of God, don't think noun, think verb. In other words, the kingdom is not God's rule, it's God ruling. Or the kingdom is not God's reign, it's God reigning. Does that make sense? So for instance, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us to pray famously, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next line? Thy kingdom come, notice, thy will be done. Those things are parallel. In other words, Jesus is holding together both the kingdom 
and God's will. He's saying that the kingdom of God is God's will being done. Now, notice, that's kind of abstract, right? Like, what does that mean, God's will being done? It doesn't really make any sense until we drop it into a story and seeing it actually getting worked out in a specific context. Here's the context. Here's the story. When we look at this world, it's painfully obvious that this world is not a place where God's will is being done. Our will is being done. And just to be really clear, (laughs) that's not a good thing, okay? So what would it look like for this abstract concept of God's will being done to get dropped down into the story of this world where things are not the way they're supposed to be? It would look like a multi-ethnic, multicultural story of rescue and renewal for this whole world. And listen, as far as I've ever been able to discover, only the Bible holds out this kind of hope for this world. For instance, Vinath Ramachandra is a, um, a Christian writer and social activist. He's also Sri Lankan, which means that he's way more familiar with all the other religions of the world than we are because he lives right in the midst of them. Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. In a lecture he once gave, he said that people will often ask him the question, hey, don't you believe that there are salvation in other faiths? Here's a brilliant response to that. He says, biblical salvation is not an escape from this world, but the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for the world in any of the religious systems. He means the material world. You will not find hope for this material world in any of the religious systems or philosophies of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. That is why when some people ask me, don't you think there's salvation in other faiths? I always say, what salvation are you talking about? Not this salvation. Now that is a brilliant response from someone who really knows what he's talking about. Friends, when we hope for a better world, what are we hoping for? We're we're, we're hoping for justice. We're we're hoping for judgment. We're hoping for a world where things are set right. We're hoping for a world where things are exactly the way they're supposed to be. That's exactly what Jesus is offering us here. It's, It's the judgment of God, but we're looking right at it, but we don't realize it because we don't like it. As modern Western people, we we get really offended by this idea of judgment. We ask, well, how could I possibly worship a God who judges? May I gently suggest that the reason we ask that question, or at least maybe um, those of us in the majority culture ask that question, is because we live lives of incredible privilege. But if you're someone who lives in the thousands of under-resourced, underprivileged communities in this country, or if you're someone who lives in the thousands of other places all over the world where people are routinely raped, killed, murdered, tortured, and abducted, do you think that's the question they're going to ask? How can I worship a God who judges? No. The question they're going to ask is, how can I worship a God who fails to judge? How can I worship a God who fails to set things right? When we long for a better world, what are we hoping for? We're hoping for justice. We're hoping for judgment. We're hoping for something or someone to come and put down evil forever and make this world the place that it's supposed to be. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's the day when God comes to put down evil forever and remake this world to a place where everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And that leads to our last point. 
Jesus has shown us the true nature of dignity. He gives us all the choice. What will you build your identity on? He shows us the true nature of hope, that, that true hope is for this world, not escaping it, but transforming this world because this world is a place where we have chosen to set our wills against God. But lastly, Jesus shows us the true nature of God. You know, here's where we're at so far. We just saw that no one is more passionate than God um, about setting things right in this world. We long for justice. We hope for a world where evil is destroyed. That's what God's judgment does. It destroys evil. And in the first point, we saw that uh, evil, the root of evil, is not doing bad things. Doing bad things is not the root of evil. It's the fruit of evil. The, the, the real root of evil is in our hearts. Where does war and violence come from? Where does oppression and injustice come from? Th those things are the fruit of rooting our lives and our identities in something other than God. So you realize now we have a conundrum, right? Because on the one hand, we long for evil to be destroyed in this world. And yet, on the other hand, the reason evil is in the world is because we're in the world. The evil is in us. There's this place in the Lord of the Rings, I don't remember if it was in the movie, but it's in the book, where Gandalf has just died in the minds of Moria. Sorry if you've never seen the movies or read the book. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Gandalf has just died. Now Aragorn, um, the hidden king, is, is leading the fellowship to the elven kingdom of Lothlorien. And while they're on their peregrination, Boromir, one of the other guys, says, oh, I've heard of that place. That's a perilous land. We shouldn't go there. And Aragorn, who's actually been to Lothlorien, says, yeah, it is perilous indeed, but only, those, only to those who bring some evil with them. The reason evil is in the world is because we're in the world. The evil is in us. But God's wrath, listen, this is very important. God's wrath is not directed against us. God's wrath is directed against the evil that's destroying us, which means the real question is, how is God supposed to destroy evil in this world without destroying us? This parable points us to the answer. It's not the full answer. It's just a pointer, but it's a powerful pointer. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a net, and then he says, at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. Now, we modern people, we're not as familiar with the Bible as, as Jesus' audience would have been. But when they heard Jesus talk about a fiery furnace, it would have been impossible for them not to think about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel chapter 3. It's the story of three Jewish men who were carried away into captivity in Babylon. And the king there, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, commanded them to worship him. And they wouldn't do it. So Nebuchadnezzar threatens them. He says, if you don't worship me, I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. But they still won't do it. And so he does. He throws them in. The furnace, just the mouth, the entrance to the furnace is so hot that the guards who throw them into the furnace are instantly incinerated. But when King Nebuchadnezzar looks inside the furnace, not only are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not consumed, but King Nebuchadnezzar sees someone else in the furnace with them. It says, one like a son of God. 
the only reason that they are able to escape destruction in the furnace is because the Son of God went into the furnace to rescue them. Centuries later, the true Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to a garden called Gethsemane. And Jesus knew that the whole reason he came to earth was to die on the cross in order to rescue us from destruction. But when Jesus got to the garden, he started praying, and Jesus was in agony. He was in torment, but his agony and torment was not just the mere prospect of physical pain and death. That's not what was torturing him. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The reason Jesus was in agony was because of this cup. He was tasting the cup. What's the cup? In the Bible, the cup is an image of the wrath of God, a fiery furnace of all God's wrath against all the sin, evil, and death that's destroying us. Jesus was tasting the cup, and so he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, he said, not my will be done, but thy will be done. At that very moment, Jesus was already drinking from the cup. He was already tasting the wrath. He was already standing at the mouth of the furnace and feeling the force of those flames, and it smote him to the ground. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he was plunged headlong into the fiery furnace of all God's wrath and judgment on all the sin, evil, and death that's destroying us. Do you realize, why would Jesus do that? It's because he loves you. Do you see what it cost Jesus to love you? It cost him hell, literally. All the fire, all the wrath, all the, the furnace, all the hell was poured into Jesus' heart so that it could be pulled out of our heart. Or we could say it like this. Jesus didn't die on the cross to get us out of hell. He died on the cross to get hell out of us. And the more you see Jesus doing that for you, the more you will hear the voice of the Father. Another voice deep inside your heart, not the voice of your desire, not the voice of your heart, but the voice of the Father whispering to you, do you see how much I love you? I gave everything for you. Friends, that is true authenticity because that is an identity that lasts forever. And you know, the real tragic irony about all of this is that the more we try to make God more loving by getting rid of this idea of judgment, the more we try to do that, what we're actually saying is we don't want a God whom it cost anything to love us. We're saying, God, I'm not that bad. I don't need your forgiveness. Leave me alone. And God respects our dignity so much that he says, thy will be done. The more we see Jesus taking judgment for us on the cross, the more we become people who are able to leave judgment in God's hands. That doesn't mean that we no longer hold people morally accountable. That doesn't mean that we get all codependent and refuse to confront evil. No, it does mean that we begin to see everyone as the objects of God's deepest affection, we begin to see them the way God sees them, as, as people, no matter how bad they are on the surface, we begin to see them as people that God, his, his greatest passion is not to destroy them, but to destroy the evil that's destroying them and us. 
If God sees people that way, how much more should we? Don't you realize, far from making us more judgmental, the judgment of God should make us the least judgmental and most welcoming people in the world. It should make us people who, you know, here's the question, who's eligible for the kingdom of God? Who's welcome in the family of God? Is it the smartest people? Is it the most virtuous people? Is it the most spiritual people? Is it people who meditate 12 hours a day? Is it people who are on the right side of history? Is that who's eligible for the kingdom of God? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I, um, years ago, read a book called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, one of the best books I ever read when I was a new Christian. And in that book, he paraphrases that beatitude of Jesus. And I, I want to just read it to you now. And while I'm reading it, I would maybe even invite you to just close your eyes and listen to this. Friends, who's eligible for the kingdom of God? Jesus says, blessed are the physically repulsive. Blessed are those who smell bad, the twisted, misshapen, deformed, the too big, too little, too loud, the bald, the fat, and the old, for they are all riotously celebrated in the party of Jesus. Then there are the seriously crushed ones, the flunkouts, and dropouts, and burnedouts, the broke, and the broken, the drug heads, and the divorced, the HIV positive, and herpes ridden, the brain damaged, the incurably ill, the barren, and the pregnant too many times, or at the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the parents with children living on the street, the children with parents not dying in the, quote, rest home. The lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved or emotionally dead. Even the moral disasters, murderers and child molesters, the brutal and the bigoted, drug lords and pornographers, war criminals and sadists, terrorists, the perverted and the filthy and the filthy rich. As you listen to that list, do you know anybody on that list? What's more, can you find yourself somewhere on that list? If you can, blessed are them and blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, and you are riotously celebrated in the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning that you love us so much and that you respect the dignity and glory with which you created us so much that you have invested us with the, the responsibility, the, the dignity and the choice of choosing who we will build our identity on. Will we build it on you or will we build it on something else? We confess to you that too often we do choose to build our identities in this world on things that can never last and as a result, we cannot last. And yet, you love us so much that you can't let us alone. You love us so much that you came to earth not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment on our behalf by dying on the cross for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for showing us how much you love us. 
And I pray that you would help us to hear your voice amidst all the competing voices in our heart. Help us to hear your voice, Lord Jesus, to hear the voice of the Father, to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit whispering to us, you are my beloved. See what it cost me to rescue you from destruction. And I pray that you would help us to go out into this world as vessels of that love. Lord, as the least judgmental, most welcoming people in the world, as vessels of your love who bear witness to your love and might become um, little harbingers of your voice, your authenticity, your dignity and love to the world around us, which so desperately needs it. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.